yeah, it's like taken for granted that yoga came from a place and it came from a people in a way. And it's also not as widely understood as I'd like it to be that yoga has not just been a gift that's given away to people all around the world. I mean, you hear that all the time. You hear this narrative that yoga is this wonderful gift for us to use and benefit from. And that's true, but it's also about relationship, which is what everybody says yoga means, right? Union and communion. And so we think about the practice of yoga and the delivery of these practices to everyone all over the world. It's actually about the relationship that you have then with the place and the people. And if that relationship doesn't exist, I would just invite people to think about how they can strengthen this relationship and think of it as any relationship that they want to dive deeper into. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Welcome back to A Curious Yogi Podcast. This week, I've got such a relevant and such an important conversation with Tejal Patel, a first-generation Indian-American yoga teacher, writer, podcaster, and community organizer. Tejal's aim is to educate and empower individuals and groups around the world to practice yoga holistically and through a social justice equity lens. Tejal can be found organizing and teaching at the revolutionary Tejal Yoga Online Studio, a primarily South Asian teacher-led yoga community focused on social justice actions and authentic, culturally rooted spiritual practices. When not teaching yoga and running the studio, Tejal is out in the world, speaking to organizations and institutions about anti-racism and up-leveling belonging in communities. They're co-managing the ABCD Yogi Interactive Community, which platforms and uplifts South Asian yoga and meditation teachers living around the world. They're also sharing about their Yoga is Dead podcast, ebook, and signature cultural appropriation training, all of which raise necessary critical conversations about yoga, wellness, power, privilege, and more. This discussion is filled with practical ways we can all begin to examine the inequalities present in the communities and systems we're a part of, along with many tangible ways to take action right now. Tejal's clarity, conviction, and well-spoken wisdom will leave you with much to consider. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay, amazing. I'm ready too. So I'll just start by welcoming you to the podcast. Like I was just saying, I'm really really grateful for your time, your energy, the amazing work that you're doing, and really want to start by appreciating you, and thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Bobby. I'm really happy to be here and connect with you. It's always really fun and enjoyable for me to connect with people that want to talk about yoga and social justice and how that works in the world, so thank you. I, I do just think it's such an important time and to have your experience, your position, your lens on yoga and how it impacts the world, the current context of yoga in the West. And you're just, you know, I've followed you for quite a while and you're so spoken and I really appreciate what you share because it invites for me, for myself, such a point of contemplation to ask myself bigger questions as to like, what is these uncomfortable feelings that we have during this uncomfortable time. And in your newsletter that you sent recently, you said something in there and I've been reflecting on it all week. I think leading up to this conversation, you said something like avoidance leads to ignorance or invites ignorance. And and I feel that, that right now there is a sense for a lot of people that it's so uncomfortable with what's going on in Palestine, just reflecting on the, larger systems at play which are oppressive and racist and what can we do uh, 
to to move through that and what you shared about radical accountability and I really want to get into all of that but I think a good place to start is for you to share your spiritual journey how you came to do this work and share this work and invite others to start considering how it's important yeah thank you for thank you for that perspective and context because it's so true and i know we'll talk more about avoidance ignorance radical accountability current events social justice and how it relates to now if we want to talk about how i got here um yeah i'm happy to share my thoughts on that i really like how you phrased it with calling it my spiritual journey And I don't think, oddly enough, I've ever talked about my journey as a spiritual journey, but that's exactly what it is. I grew up in an Indian Hindu household, and whether we went to temple, Hindu temple on Sundays, or we prayed in our small corner of the room, mandir, we called it, or temple, we would have that practice every Sunday, and we would honor the holidays of the Hindu calendar. And it was a really inclusive environment from my perspective. It was a really clear and transparent environment. If a friend wanted to stay over on Saturday night, I'd always let them know, okay, totally, or I can come to your house. If you come to mine on Sundays, my dad's going to ask us to sit in prayer and he has a little laminated prayer sheet for you. That's the transliteration. So we can do that or we can do something else. Um, But that was part of the invitation to build relationship in my house and with my family. And it was exposure to the culture that I grew up in that my parents carried over when they immigrated from India, along with a lot of other cultural traditions that we kept in the household. For me, that was my spiritual journey. And over time, I continue to look for places where I could feel that type of connection to the scriptures that referenced yoga, that talked about yoga from a bhakti yoga lens, from a jnana yoga lens, from a karma yoga lens. And I bet you can guess that going into studios um, was kind of a flop if I was really looking for that type of environment. And I kept doing that until about 2012, when I had already been living in New York for four years. And I went into a yoga studio with the intention to join a teacher training. And that was really my first relationship building practice with the studio and the students. And it's funny to think about now that that was okay. And I had an interview with the teacher training director the night before the training started And I was at a point in my life where I realized I wanted the structure of a teacher training, this five-month-long training that happened in my neighborhood. And I wanted a way to connect my own spiritual upbringing and journey of yoga to what was going on in studios. I no longer wanted those two things to be separate. So I went in eyes wide open thinking like whatever I face through this teacher training, whether it's complementary to what I learned growing up or completely antithetical to it, um, I'm in. And that and that was an interesting process because I was getting a lot more grounded in the foundation of how Western studio culture created this vinyasa addiction for people. And, and then realizing that a teacher training is so different content-wise than what is taught in class. So that all started to sit with me in a way that create that was in the container of what I understood the yoga that was being taught in in studios to be. And that started me on my journey of trying to bridge the gap of what I experienced growing up to what was happening in studios. And it took a few years for me to feel grounded in being able to bridge that gap and offer things differently than, you know, traditional vinyasa flow. Um traditional community class structure where you get to highlight something different than vinyasa or cause something or cause focus organization um, and only do that like once in a while with what I wanted to offer in yoga. 
So then I started to create more spaces where I could offer different programming, more accessible programming for all body types, all ability levels, um, lower cost or free options sponsored through uh, organizations that would take the burden off the student. And that led me to creating ABCD Yogi, which is a global interactive platform that uplifts and elevates South Asian yoga and meditation teachers from all around the world. Because at the, by that point in 2018, I had realized that there was a lack of representation from the people and the place that yoga comes from. And that felt really destabilizing for me as I continued on in my yoga teaching. But also the way to kind of correct that was to build community and build a network which to me was ABCD Yogi. We had already moved into being online in a in a really huge way for all that we do. And then on top of that, my personal experiences within yoga studios really highlighted to me that there was something wrong with the industry. It was just replicating other industries' failures around power dynamics, um, abuse of privilege, uh, racism, othering, poor labor, conditions and pay. And I wanted to talk about that in a way that would help people do better, not just um, the students, but also the studio owners and, and the teachers. And that's where the idea for the yoga is dead podcast came from. And that podcast came out in 2019 for six months, uh, one season and six episodes. And then 2020 was the pandemic. And because ABCD Yogi and Yoga is Dead podcasts were already online, when I wasn't able to teach classes in person anymore through uh, my own programming and also through the studio I was at, I just combined everything to the Thajal Yoga platform in 2020 online. And I've been teaching classes online ever since, as well as in 2021, bringing in nine other South Asian teachers. And so we have a schedule of one to three classes a day that you can join live or access on demand through membership. That's kind of where the journey has led me to today. Wow. Beautiful. I love how you thread the spiritual practice of your upbringing into sounds like all aspects of your life. Like doesn't sound like there's a differentiation between your practice and your work and the way that you share that. So thank you for that. And yeah, there was a few things that you said there that I think we could really expand on. And I wondering if you could start by talking about the importance for us as students, as teachers, as studio owners, if they're listening to work towards the, not even empowering, I know that's the wrong word, but supporting South Asian yoga teachers and supporting that as the counter to the way that the yoga industry is in North America. Like, I find it very disheartening when I'm here participating in studios or teaching in studios. And it's it's very clear that there's a lack in South Asian representation, not only in the teachers, but in the students as well. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. I think it's such a good question to consider your own personal practice and how to support uh, spaces that are attempting to reclaim the, not just the narrative, but the reality that yoga comes from South Asia and it comes from India and it comes from uh, people that are still practicing yoga today, which I think it's missed a lot that Yeah, it's like taken for granted that yoga came from a place and it came from a people in a way. And it's also not as widely understood as I'd like it to be that yoga has not just been a gift that's given away to people all around the world. I mean, you hear that all the time. You hear this narrative that yoga is this wonderful gift for us to use and benefit from. And that's true, but it's also about relationship, which is what everybody says yoga means, right? Union and communion. And so we think about the practice of yoga and the delivery of these practices to everyone all over the world. It's actually about the relationship 
that you have then with the place and the people. And if that relationship doesn't exist, I would just invite people to think about how they can strengthen this relationship and think of it as any relationship that they want to dive deeper into. So what would you do? You'd get more interested and you'd start to learn more about the history or the thing itself that connects back to the land and the place that connects back to the culture. And then just as we do with ABCD Yogi, when people take over, they talk about their connection to the practice that usually has something to do with their family history and lineage. And then they also talk about how through their journey of learning, studying, practicing, and teaching, they've faced challenges in being able to get that information or give that information out. So I would advise everyone listening to also look at, well, what are the challenges to me accessing this information that I want to get, or to me talking to people that might have a different perspective that are of South Asian ethnic representation and start to look at why there are challenges for you to be able to get in touch with someone or to access books or articles written by South Asian people that are practicing and teaching yoga and then address those challenges to the capacity that you can. Sometimes it's a matter of just searching on the internet a little differently, like adding a different search term than what you might normally do. So if someone wants to look up inclusive yoga, they can just look up inclusive yoga South Asian teacher and see what comes up. I think that's one way to do it. And I think if you are interested in practicing in studios, it takes a lot of digging to find uh, in-person studios that might have people of South Asian background that have been offering yoga the way you're interested in it even. And then to challenge yourself to see, oh, is there another type of yoga out there that maybe I could start learning about if I'm not already practicing the way this person teaches? Another thing that's a good resource for people is on abcdyogi.com. There is a Teachers Wanted uh, form, and you can submit that form if you're looking for someone that aligns with ABCD Yogi values and has taken over on ABCD Yogi in your area, wherever you are in the world. It could be online if that's what you're looking for. But if you are looking for someone in person, you can submit a request on that form too. Amazing. I, I love what you said about relationship. And when I think of relationship, it makes me think of reciprocity. And like so much of yoga and the way that it's presented is about like, it's very much a eye focused practice. Ironically, like what can I get from my practice? I'm here for me. It's, it's very much not shared in that way. And I, and I just think it's really eloquent the way that you put it, that that is what we cannot just expect yoga to be there and take everything from it. Actually, that there has to be this, place of curiosity and and questioning and then something that you said too that when uh, me as a student as an inquirer someone that is genuinely seeking a depth in my yoga practice then to question something deeper why is it why is it not so readily available why are these teachers not so widely known in my yoga community and then it does bring up the question of the system the way that it's in a larger way presented and like makes me question what is the problem here and what is my part in the problem of the yoga and wellness industry as it currently is so I think it's good to bring up more questions it's almost like seeking more answers brings up more questions which it makes me question within myself absolutely I think that's such a good way to think about it and Something that dominant wellness culture does a really good job of is trying to give you a direct answer, uh, only this way kind of answer. And you think about um, some of the questions you might have. And if you go to some mainstream platforms or influencers around yoga, it seems like they have the answer. And it's great. Like I'll join their program. They have the answer for me. But one thing I always direct people to think about critically is when someone gives you a very black and white answer, a very either this, not that answer, uh, how much is getting lost in the rest of that narrative? And how much are we 
then being trained to not even pick up on because we have one source that we trust and we want to go to for all of our answers. And when we do that, I think it just limits a lot of our context and a lot of our ability to like think critically about the information we're receiving. That's a trait of dominant culture and dominant culture has infiltrated into wellness culture. So it's one and the same. People would also argue that it's white supremacy culture where you go for one answer instead of the expansive thought process and maybe even leaving your leaving more questioning, more curious, even more confused than when you started, but sitting with that so that you can start to uh, pick apart these threads that feel confusing or feel like they make you curious so that you can get to the bottom of it and then keep revisiting it. You mentioned that uh, newsletter I recently wrote about radical accountability. So I linked in a great article from another um, consultant that writes about radical accountability. But something that I brought to that newsletter was the idea of praxis, which is arriving somewhere, but then continually revisiting it. And so it's this kind of infinite closed loop where you get to a decision, but then you revisit how that decision is flowing through and all the places you're implementing action around it. And then you're just continuing to reassess what's working, what's not working. I think that's really important for us to start doing more often because we change every day. So then our approach is allowed to change. And some people call it evolution. You could just call it, you know, being open to change, being open to other opinions and facts and ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of reflective of the importance of having a daily practice of contemplating and sitting with ourselves each day and recognizing where there's nuances and where things are different than yesterday, not only in the way that we perceive the world, but in like the way that the world is unfolding day by day. And that's kind of, to me, how I experience yoga in a sense is that like continual point of reflection, like for me as the individual and my, my role as a part of the greater whole. When you're talking to about how the yoga is, yoga is dead podcast came about I think it's really provocative if I will or like thought-provoking when I went on your website I looked at those six episodes like yoga is dead because of these few episodes that you had white women gurus vinyasa 200 hours which (laughs) I would definitely agree with 200 hours and I'm just curious about your perspective and your position on those topics as to how yoga has become so saturated and far from, you know, like your Hindu upbringing of spirituality and yoga as this integral part or extension of Indian religions like Hinduism, like Buddhism, and how it's become so filtered down and watered down into the context which it's monetized on and shared now in this moment? Yeah, it's such a huge question, but this is where I think we shouldn't look away. We should really try and dig into it because it's so important to understand. There's one thing I want to say right at the top, which is this conversation around cultural appropriation and what is it and what isn't it, what constitutes appropriation versus appreciation. If you Google just that, appropriation versus appreciation, I hope you come up with some results that will articulate appreciation is when there's giving. So if you're, if you're practicing yoga, you're also giving back. That's showing true appreciation. Appropriation is a one-way street of taking. And it's what we've been circling around already in our conversation. We've been talking about that. How much can you get from yoga? How much can you receive from yoga? But there's no give back. Some people think the give back is when they become teachers and then start teaching it as well. But that's still excluding the practice, the people and the place from which it came. It's just continuing that taking and then flowing down through what you've received. It's not giving back. It's giving forward, which isn't so bad, but if there's no give back, it can be seen as 
appropriation, especially if what you're taking is from another culture. That's the definition. Um, I think we got here because of racism, because of global structural racism. And that might seem like a very giant issue for, oh, really that happened in yoga? 100% that happened in yoga. And because of racism that has always existed against people of color or people of the global majority, that's how we got to colonization. That's how we got to the original perpetrators of cultural appropriation and cultural decimation. When colonizers would come in and try to take cultural elements, objects, practices from the people, rebrand it, remarket it as their own, or sanitize it in a way that felt comfortable for them because they weren't curious enough to understand its impact as it was. And then popularize it because if you're a colonizer, you're obviously of a group that has more power over the people, the land, or the place that you're colonizing. So then you have the ability, the capital to popularize it. And then what happens is this version of neocolonialism, which once you've effectively removed it from that source culture, you then create it or rebrand it in a certain way and sell it back to the originating source culture or the, or the people. That might sound like totally wild. Why would any culture buy it back? But we're talking about power dynamics. So there's an example of this that I use in my workshop. So you want to chant Om and Namaste using spiritual terms with respect. And we go through the timeline from 1993, which is very recent, where certain schools in the United States decided to remove cultural elements from the practice or ban yoga altogether. And what elements were removed were mandalas, coloring mandalas or mudras, which are hand gestures, um, placing the palms together in Anjali mudra, which is a gesture of offering that some people translate as a gesture of prayer, and also any non-English words. So all this became removed from schools. It happened in the South, it happened in California, it happens all over the place in smaller school districts where the news isn't even shared. What happened over time, about 10, 11 years later, uh, the government in India wanted to push to put yoga practices in every single school, which made people uncomfortable in India because of the way religious minorities are already treated. And I think it's an important moment to introduce this idea that yoga is not inherently Hindu. Yoga was created before Hinduism was codified. So it's spiritual from this place of India and South Asia. And then Hinduism came later and also talks about elements of yoga. And so someone from my background, it's easy for me to see the two as one, even though I know better. It's very spiritual practice, pre-codification. It is open to anyone. You don't have to be within a specific religion to practice. But what was happening in India in the 2010s was that the majority group in power was trying to use the narrative to the public that yoga is secular and at the same time implementing policies that would oppress religious minorities. So the two were happening hand in hand, which made people uncomfortable in India. And you know what the government did in India? They cited the court cases that happened in the US that removed the cultural elements as a way to implement the yoga in schools in India. And that loop is how it gets bought back in a way to the originating source culture by other cultures that are have more sway or have more power or can be used as kind of a stocking horse to get what you need done where you are. Wow. That's so interesting. And thank you for that. Can you expand a little bit on what you said about yoga and Hinduism not being one in the same and making it clear for myself and for the listeners, how yoga is culturally 
South Asian and the, those cultural elements that have been taken away, like how important they are and how they're similar to Indian religions, but yet how they're non-secular. So the practice of yoga was created prior to Hinduism being codified. And I think that just knowing that that origin was earlier than Hinduism is very important. I also think it's important to know that there's a lot of overlap. So if you're talking about a deity, I think white people love to talk about Kali Ma or goddess Kali. And the thing is, Kali shows up in a lot of Hindu scriptures and storytelling. But in order to practice yoga, you don't need to be Hindu. And in fact, you can honor and respect and acknowledge things within Hinduism. And Hinduism says that's okay that you might practice other religions. I think the interesting part for people is to know that and also know whether the religion they practice allows them to also understand, learn, and respect other religions. And how that line isn't so clear. It's a pretty blurry line. But in the East, spirituality is not one for one with religion. So it's a different way of thinking about things. Um, but it doesn't ignore the fact that Eastern's, Eastern philosophies come from the East. And so, that, yes, it sounds very open and available for people, 100%. But how are you not? appropriating and actually appreciating by giving back. You don't have to give back monetarily, but you can give back through acknowledgement. You can give back through uh, sharing about the lineage. You can give back through respecting the culture and the way that the traditions have been passed down rather than divorcing what you've learned from the culture and trying to recreate it and brand it as something new in order to profit from it. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's an important differentiation that you pointed out because it can could seem like almost a window. Oh, if it's so open, then that means I can take it. And it's because it's open, I can take it and interpret it in a way that serves me and my perspective, even though it's not correct perspective in terms of South Asian history and lineage. So thank you for that. And I think, you know, like you said, we're continually talking about the relationship and the give back. And for me, when I look at the work that you're doing, such a part that seems to be your way of giving back is coupling yoga with social justice. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why social justice is important in the yoga platform, in the way that you share it and in the way that we all have the opportunity to share it as yoga practitioners or people that are interested in yoga. Yeah, I think it's, they're intrinsically linked. I don't really know why the two are um, seen as separate because yoga is a practice of social justice. And what I mean by that is the understanding that yoga as a practice is meant to make, meant to help someone feel whole, right? Meant to help someone feel in unity with mind, body, spirit, and soul. And the reason why so many people want to then, what I believe want to then teach yoga and offer it to others is because of that great benefit that they felt towards uh, feeling whole, right? Feeling acceptable, feeling like a person that has autonomy again. And then you want to share that feeling with others through the teaching of yoga that helped you. That practice is social justice. Social justice is the removal of barriers of access to anything that helps you feel a part of society, more connected to yourself, like give you the resources to be a part of society and more connected to yourself. I don't really see the difference. So when we talk about maybe some concrete examples of social justice, it's to look at barriers to access. So in a given society or neighborhood or city, what are the barriers to access for all people to feel a sense of connection and belonging? Practically, that could look like 
does this place have a public transportation system that isn't pricing people out, that is accessible, and that allows people without cars to be able to show up to work in a timely, restful fashion, the same way people with cars can. Uh, if we look at that through a yogic lens, it just makes sense that our practice that helps us make us feel well and resourced or back to balance doesn't just end, doesn't just start and end with a finite 60 minute practice, 75 minute practice. It actually then moves out to the relationships that we're in, in our community with others and with the environment. I really think about yoga as a practice that builds on our four major relationships. One relationship is the one you have with yourself, which is this main root relationship and the health of that relationship uh, maintains the health of the other three. And the other three are the relationship you have with the people you just interact with on a daily basis, like the person who delivers your packages, the person at the cash register, the relationship you have with those in your community or the society that you're in, and then the relationship you have with the environment and nature. So if yoga is about union, it's not just about union to self. That is one of the most important relationships, maintain the health of that relationship. But when that is in play, it expands out to these other relationships too. Mm -hmm. I think there's this like notion that yoga is there to make us feel good. And like you said, to make us recognize our wholeness and sometimes when practicing yoga with oneself, I'm speaking from my own self, it can also be really uncomfortable. And I think the the, the farther out we get in those relationships, the more intense that discomfort, that squirminess of the ego can really get pressed and it can it can make people, myself included, withdraw more when actually, rather than facing that discomfort, which comes with looking at these oppressed societies, like I'm from settler ancestry, like looking at this uncomfortable lens of ourselves, but also in the greater context. And like, what would you say or how do you share that in your work of how we move through these uncomfortable conversations, through this uncomfortable it is a squirminess that makes us want to go back to that ignorance and avoidance. Yeah, that's such a good question because it's it's really real human emotion to feel uncomfortable and then decide what to do with that discomfort. So sometimes I can get really avoidant. Right? I just want to walk away. I want to turn it all off. I don't want to pay attention to that. And it's important to honor that if you need a if you need a pause and if you need a break. For sure. But it's also, and I should say, it's also important to notice that walking away only um, serves to smother what that discomfort is really hiding or that uncomfortability is uncovering for you. And when we smother something, it's not resolving. It's not going away. It's just getting pushed down further. And to me, it's this image of a volcano that's just steadily increasing about to erupt or it's like that temperature point when an ice cube melts like it's an ice cube it's an ice cube it's an ice cube and then all of a sudden it's melting <laughs> so there is a point in which things will change whether you want to be a part of that process or not is really a choice and so if the choice is to walk away not pay attention um, that buildup is happening whether you're noticing it or not and you get to that moment where the situation changes, where what you're not looking at erupts. I think that avoidance, like we talked about earlier, will lead to ignorance, right? If we're avoiding the thing, how do we get to learn more about it, right? We're not curious. We're not asking questions. We're not in uh, inviting more conversation. We're not joining spaces that might break down the issues so that we can feel uh, a better sense of understanding and clarity. 
And I think that's really a disservice to the people that are asking so desperately to be noticed and to be helped, right? There's always someone that's looking for help, whether we choose to notice it or not. And I just think we don't need to create a reality separate from the actual reality. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when I'm sitting here and hearing you speak, the tendency is to think of myself in this situation. And I know that's also kind of a part of the problem is people like myself coming from positions of privilege to know how and when to step aside and move into a position more of allyship versus the me-ship, <laughs> if however like, language you want to put on it. And can you speak a little bit about how the way in which and you kind of did actually touch on a little bit that we can become, I can become better allies to the BIPOC community and those people that you express that are asking for help and recognition? Yeah, I think that giving back can happen in a bunch of different ways. So if you have a platform, you can hold classes where there is a give back associated to different causes. And in order to do that, it would require a little bit of relationship building. So inviting conversation with the causes and the people that are spearheading these causes and raising funds could be a really great avenue. I also think if you have a platform and you're willing to then share your platform with others, that's a great place to be able to um, uplift other communities that you're not a part of, but that you're developing relationship with because of this information and knowledge that you have and wanting to be an accomplice. Sharing your platform could look like inviting a class or two that's led and guided by someone from the community that you're wishing to support. It could look like sharing resources in your newsletter, ways in which you've been learning. It could look like, um, again, donating. If there's a portion of the proceeds that you can donate, it could also look like organizing on the ground and going to volunteer with those organizations if they're looking for support, if they're looking for more people to help with advocacy. Because being an ally is one thing, but being an accomplice is to take direction from those key stakeholders of whatever it is you're looking to support. So taking direction means just building the relationship with the people or the cause that you're wishing to support and then noticing what are they asking? What are they needing? What are they looking for? And how can you help support with what they're already asking for? That's important than stepping back and saying, I'm going to do this whole different thing and hope it's purposeful. Usually people are very clear about what they need. And so it just takes a little bit of researching and relationship building to understand that. Yeah, I guess it keeps coming back to that, that it is about building that relationship and asking, how can I support you? And what do you need from me? Just like to touch on what's going on right now in the world and how disturbing it is to see what's happening in Palestine and not only there, but other countries in which people are very oppressed and facing systems that are oppressive and racist and just the scope of the world right now. What can we as the individual collective do in these times to move towards that which yoga is, which is that unity, like you said, that wholeness, how can we take action through our yoga to help the situation, to help ourselves in the situation? Yeah, another really good question. I I think that it's important to notice what's going on in the world, not avoid it. And there's always so much going on. So just start with that framework. There's so much going on. I can't do it all, but I can take actions towards some things. That's really important. I don't I don't think anyone thinks they're going to resolve racism or uh, you know, fix the climate problem that we're facing as an individual. 
but you can take actions and you can join larger collectives that are taking actions. Um, I think what I, what I do, what I do at Thajal Yoga to stay involved and to connect connected and also to connect the people that are interested in learning more is hosting community hours where I invite in wellness or activist leaders in the BIPOC community to talk about their work and to give people information about that work in an approachable way. And then also invite people to take time for actions, to be able to take a few actions that would help this cause. So just yesterday, uh, the community hour was about the Iran revolution, which has been over one year ongoing. And of course, the political history and dynamic is way further, started way further back. But a climate justice activist and an who's Iranian British came in to talk about this with us and really just break down some key elements to the timeline and give us some clear defined actions that could help right now and ways that we could stay connected. So one year ago, we talked about this revolution, the Women Life Freedom Movement, and it's one year later. So it's important to play the long game when we're seeing these revolutions happen so that we can stay connected and also continue to do the work. Last month, we talked about the climate justice movement, but we tied it back to our yoga community in that we talked about fast fashion and fashion activism and how some of the clothes that we wear actually contribute to emissions that are really terrible for the countries in which these clothes are manufactured. We think about the people of the global majority and for example, Lululemon manufactures 39% of their clothes in Vietnam that emissions rate has increased last year. And last year, Vietnam has reported, all Southeast Asia has reported record-breaking high temperatures. So the two are linked. So quit coal. Also notice where you're supporting and tie that into your yoga practice, right? That's environment. That's the people around you. It's the community that you're in. So really getting clear on how this harmful impact from this company actually trickles down because what Lululemon is really good at is glossing over that and saying, no, we work in the community really well through our ambassadors and through some of our nonprofit giving, which the nonprofit giving is directly linked to their profits. So they only have money to give when they're making money off of people. I just think it's really important to sit with this, have conversations, develop awareness around it. So then it can become very clear what actions you want to take that feel aligned with your approach to yoga and social justice. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, and like using the example of, of the individual action that can lead to something greater is just choosing to buy our, our clothing garments in a way which is reflective of ahimsa, which is reflective of non-harming, including and not limited to our personal individual experience. So thank you for that. And just to wrap up this conversation, it's been so illuminating. So thank you so much. I, I love to ask the guests at the end of the conversation to leave us with a point to contemplate in our own practice. And I know you have given us so much to, to really chew on and think about from our personal lens and also the wider lens. But if you had to pinpoint one point for us to really reflect on, what would that be? I would invite everyone to reflect on what single or multiple actions they could take so that they can feel that they're part of a greater collective that is working towards the greater good and eliminating barriers to access through a social justice lens. Beautiful. Yeah, I think I'll definitely be reflecting on this for a while. So thank you so much. And yeah, just lastly, this conversation has been, like I said, illuminating. And also in one way it, it reveals the problem 
a, a lot more clearly and it leaves space for hopefulness. So thank you for that. And I would just ask finally, where are you going from here in your work and where where do we go from here? Yeah, I think that's such a good question as well. Thank you, Bobby. Such great question. <laughs> um, you know, what I'm working on in my work is to stay grounded in this, in the work that I'm doing, stay connected to what I feel is social justice that is intrinsically linked to yoga and continuing to share more about it with people. I don't know that it's always about getting bigger and growing and finding more ways to triple double growth. For me, it's about continuing to share the good work that we're doing, the values-based offerings that we have, and then continue to invite people into building their own awareness of what yoga and social justice is and what actions they could take that help them feel connected. One thing I would invite everyone to consider is to come to Thajal Yoga and take a free class. Your first class is free. So maybe it's community hour, maybe it's a weekly meditation or movement practice or spiritual discourse or sound session, but see what it's like from the way that I've been talking about yoga and social justice, actually put that into context for yourself. Yeah. And for those listening, we want to come take a class with you. Where can we connect with you and read more, find more, sign up for your newsletter, all the good stuff. Yeah. All that good stuff is at thajalyoga.com. And the way you spell that is T-E- jal yoga.com. Uh, you can sign up for a free email series on how to speak up against racism in your organization or studio. You can get a free class code and then sign up for a free class if it suits your timeline, uh, time zone. And if not, we have on-demand offerings that you could sign up for and just start engaging, you know, start getting involved where you are if none of that other, you know, stuff works for you, just notice how this might land with you. If you haven't listened to the podcast, go over to yoga is dead podcast.com and also abcdyogi.com. All of these Instagrams are available too. And then you can start to see this in action. What is yoga and social justice in action? Well, thank you so much, Tejal. It's been yeah, like I said, illuminating lots here for us to digest. So thank you so much for being here, for your time, for your energy, for your conviction with what you stand in. It's it's a real it's a real inspiration. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdaya Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.